Welcome, friends and colleagues. I want to thank the people who have uh, shared their observations, their suggestions with me. And this will be uh, the beginning of an entirely new podcast. Well, not really, but it's going to be different. So one of the suggestions I received was to use the microphone and we will use the microphone now to diminish extraneous sounds and to uh, provide my voice with that drive, hopefully, that it did not possess. Also, it was recommended to me to speak like a, an actor, not like a professor. Make that voice ring. So today you will see the birth of an actor. I will speak more animatedly and in a way that will be hopefully more entertaining. There were also some suggestions about uh, the substance uh, relating to the topic we are now engaged in, which is if the light was created on the first day and the luminaries in the sky on the fourth day, where did the original light go? This is a topic which can be approached in many different ways, and we discussed some solutions, we discussed classical Jewish commentators, we discussed how the French fathers saw it, and uh, the way of reconciliation is certainly a good and proper way. However, the issue raises um, many questions. Uh, towards the end of last week's uh, episode, uh, I um, followed the rabbinical path that the light of the first day was not the same as the light of the sun, and it was the light of discernment. I hope you saw it. Do you see what I mean? We use the terms seeing and light as... Um, surrogates for understanding and grasping. And uh, what was created in the first day was the light that can result in a separation. Same way light separates between light and day and night, so it also separates between concepts and ideas. I pointed out that, interestingly, uh, the only times in the creation story that something, God says something, and it is, is light, and the first day, the firmament, and the luminaries. I suggested that light is seen as a divine kind of an object. It's something that is a light of discernment, after all, and it is not limited in any physical way. When we grasp an idea we get it. We can connect things that are very far apart in physical terms. Oh, as the sages said, this was the light with which the righteous can see from one end of the world to the other. There is no limitation of space or time when you get an insight, when you grasp a concept. <clears throat> right, right now I want to get into a an alternative explanation that occurred to me. Hope you'll like it. 
uh, of how the light of the first day was different from the light of uh, the luminaries on the fourth day. And to do that, we're going to have to take a uh, tour of ancient science and how they perceive things. I will contend that the ancients did not see light as necessarily produced by the heavenly bodies, and we already spoke about that, but that the task of the heavenly bodies was to create warmth, incidentally perhaps to create light, but also to, as it says in verse 14, to rule over the day and to rule over the night. I'm not going to get into what ruling over the day and night actually means, just enough to know that there is a disconnect between the light of the first day, which does not depend on luminaries, notwithstanding various reconciliations that we offered last time, that, that um, the light was then migrated into the sun or became the essence of the sun, various explanations from uh, the church fathers and the Jewish interpreters. But we will take it as a given that there is a light of the first day and it has nothing to do with the sun and the moon. And how do we explain that? But then we're going to have to deal with the real elephant in the room. The real elephant in the room is if the way the ancients perceived their world is so different from the way we perceive it, what does it mean to us and how to relate to the Bible? So there's nothing like working on details and there's nothing like looking at an example. The example I will use is a posting on the website called Torah.com by Rabbi Seth Farber entitled, If the Sun Was Created on Day 4, What is the Light on Day 1? Now, um, I have to tell you that uh, it represents the mindset of the entire website, which I find um, less of a site that builds faith and strengthens observance than uh, the opposite. There are four places in the Talmud, four tractates, that end with a statement that Talmidei Chachamim Rabim Shalom Ba'olam The scholars increase the peace in the world. How is that? Because there's a verse that says V'raf Shalom Banach This increase of peace of your children. The word Bonaich Base Vov Nun Yud Yud Ches can be read as a similar word, which means builders. So from here, the Talmud derives that scholars should be builders. The ultimate purpose of everything is to build. It's not to destroy. We have to be very careful with our knowledge. Knowledge is like fire. It warms those who are close to it. But if you get too close, too taken with it, it can burn and it can become destructive. <clears throat> the four tractates <coughs> that end uh, with this statement are 
in the word Bonarich. They are base, Brochus, Nun, Nida, Yud, Ivomus, Chov, Chrysus. Interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of wisdom in that alone. So, the article asks the same question, does a very nice tour of uh, commentators and ends with a historical, um, what I guess they would call in the past positivist approach, far from being positive it is, uh, concludes that the ancients saw the world in a very different way and implies that it leaves us without much to have to learn from the creation of light. That's where I have a problem. But let's get into it. So first of all, uh, let's review. We concluded that light seems to be in heaven. That's why I said insight, understanding, discernment. Uh, because the only three times that it says, God said, let there be, vayihi, or, and, and there was. And there was light. Also says that by the firmament and by the luminaries. I found another place, which is in Exodus 9.22. Hail. Hail was a plague of Egypt that came from heaven. And when you read verses 22 to 24, you will find within them the uh, fact that Moses uh, raised his hands over the heaven and there was hail. God said, let there be hail and there was hail. So, again, heavenly phenomena uh, are instantaneous. When you have to translate them into the lower realms, there is making and doing, just like it says by the luminaries, as it says by the firmament and hail. But the construction he said, let it be, and it was, is found in those verses as well. Exodus 9.22, fine. But there may be another illusion in light. Uh, or, or, Aleph, Vov, Resh, means light. But there are two other words that might help us to understand the meaning of this to the ancients. There is the word Yeor, Yud, Aleph, Vov, Resh. There is a word Nahar, which means river. Again, uh, He stands for Aleph and Vov. There's a potential exchange of those, these letters, all parts of the divine name of Yud, He, Vov, and He. They all exchange into each other. So the Vov of Or can exchange to He. And it means a straight river. If you look at Genesis 41:11, and Parah dreamt, and behold, he stands over the Yaor. Uh, Nachmanides, the Ramban, points out that the this root of Or, Aleph, Vov, and Resh is sometimes also used to mean rain. He brings examples. So. In some way, in a very basic way, light is a straight line. As is a river Nahar, as a Yorim, Yor, which 
is a straight irrigation ditch, which is, of course, what denial was uh, made of. And the references in Daniel to your uh, and uh, uh, other places uh, would then have to be understood based on the straightness. So, a ray of light. Interesting, the word ray seems to be cognitive. As, as linguists know, many times when words migrate from language to language, they reverse. So, ray, read backwards, we did like the reading Hebrew from <laughs> right to left. So, it would be something like or, or your, um, uh, confirming this idea. So, what we're talking about is God throwing a light into the world, throwing a straight, direct ray of light, which is, of course, very Kabbalistic, because that's how God descended into the empty place, uh, left bereft of his presence by his withdrawal. The withdrawal was necessary to create the space, and then he refilled it again through a ray of light. Okay. But we don't have to get Kabbalistic. We just have to look at ancient science. And the question for the ancient scientists and philosophers was, how do we see? The earliest uh, thought-through explanations comes from Empedocles, who lived in the 5th century BCE. He posited that when we open our eyes, we throw out rays of light. They hit the object we're looking at, and they come back, sort of like a radar. Another words which seems to have the same elements of the vowel and the resh are silent. But they come back to us, and that's how we see. question then arises, what about at night? Why doesn't this work at night? The answer is that you need to combine it with the light of the sun for it to work. So this was the theory of Empedocles. Uh, um, and um, it's called the emission theory of vision. The theory was very influential. I mean, it seems to me that it was also uncontested. Uh, later on, uh, it was contested by the atomists, but Plato believed in it, Euclid believed in it. In 300, uh, around 300 BCE, he wrote the book called Optics. He did have some issues with it. He asked, how come then when we open our eyes at night, we immediately see the stars? Shouldn't it take time for our light to travel all the way to the distant stars and return? He was not the only one. Ptolemy believed in it. Galen believed in it. I think it may also actually be hinted to in the Bible uh, with a little bit of creative reading. There is a verse in Ecclesiastes, Kohelis 11, Chapter 11, verse 7. It says, Kimatok haor, for sweet is the or, light, v'tov le'inayim, and good for the eyes, liros as Hashemish, to see the sun. That's the usual reading of it. Because it's a little bit strange. Uh, if you look in the sun, it certainly would not feel sweet or good. Um, perhaps somewhat homiletically, and I'm not sure this is the actual meaning, but it's a close to the real meaning, we would read like this. We would read the word as Hashemish, not as indicating 
the object, sort of accusative form, uh, but as meaning with, which it also means. Very often the word as means with. So this is how you would read it. Uh, for sweetest delight and good for the eyes to see, comma, with the sun. That's what Empedocles taught, that the light comes out of the eyes, hits the object, comes back, but you need it to be with the sunlight. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Okay, with that fanciful aside, uh, I first came across this in, in the a book called Otsres Chaim, which is a simpler, not simple, Kabbalistic work of the student of, of Isaac Luria, the uh, Ari HaKodesh, of Chaim Vital. And he brings two more proofs to this theory. One, there's some mythical animal that can kill its prey by simply looking at it. So that means that something comes out of its eyes and reaches its prey. Two, and this is interesting, <laughs> uh, sometimes you just know someone is looking at you from the back. The ancients thought that maybe there is a hidden third eye. But very often you sit someplace and you just know that someone is looking at you who is behind you. And you turn around and, you, and yes, someone is looking at you and perhaps bashfully that person then removes his gaze. But how do you feel that? It must be that there is light that's coming out and you sense it. Interesting. Well, if you think this way of uh, understanding vision is long dead, it's not. There was a study in 2020 published by Weiner G.A. et al. in the American Psychologist, years 2020, I'm saying 2002. This, this was in 2002, not 2020, my mistake. Volume 57, pages 417 to 424. 2002, 57, 417-424. 50% of adults who were asked how they see believe that it's through this emission theory that their eyes put out light, which then comes back to their eyes. <clears throat> so, what we do see that the ancients understood the light as not being connected to the sun. And we see that again. You see something because you look at it, you throw out the light, ping, and then it comes back, and then you know what you're looking at. That has nothing to do with the luminaries. You might need the sunlight to make it work, but it's a different, different kind of light. Well, so what's the elephant in the room? <clears throat> we got to make logical conclusions. The big, big elephant in the room is that if the ancients saw things so differently than we now in this generation, based on scientific advancement, see them, what value is in what they said? This kind of thinking gave rise to the new atheism, <coughs> which dismisses everything in the Bible. The old atheists saw value in it. The new atheists say, well, these were primitive people. The picture they paint is of Warfare, oppression, misogyny, slavery, ignorance, disease. 
So, therefore, the Bible has nothing to say to us. We are so much more advanced than it was. Why bother? So, first of all, I have to tell you that ancient civilizations were sophisticated. Even in terms of material culture, I, I just saw an article that uh, the tin factories in the Middle East uh, apparently had some of their metal delivered from mines in England. Uh, we, there were tremendous trading uh, exchanges, there was exchanges of ideas, there were books, they built great things. I, I looked at a uh, simulation of uh, Rome, a video simulation of Rome, unbelievable long wide avenues, uh, amazing buildings, things that we would have uh, probably no way to duplicate from scratch now. <clears throat> it's only when they showed a rider uh, along one of the avenues and his horse that I was snapped back into the reality that I'm not looking at some modern, clean and beautiful planned European city. I'm looking at an ancient city. So, um, they certainly were not savages, and uh, it's easy to make an argument that in the matters of spirit, they were way more advanced than we are. <laughs> when we look around, we don't see a lot of spirit, do we? But beyond that, <clears throat> the, we have really three choices to deal with this argument, I think. One is, mm, we admit that it's all bunk. And we become new atheists. We live the first 10 years in happiness, joy, and revelry. And then we watch the rest of our lives as the society disintegrates. And maybe, like the former communist in the social, the Soviet Republic, then we ask ourselves, did I give my life to this? Uh, no question that uh, the disintegration of society is based on abandoning biblical ideas. I'm not going to go there right now, but it's not where the society wants to be. But that's what will end up if it has such ideas about the relevance or correctness of the Bible. Our second choice is to withdraw. We will withdraw into our seminaries, houses of study, madrasas. We will understand the world the way the ancients did. Um, we will reject modernity. We'll go back four or five hundred years to the habits of thought that are no longer widely shared in society. That's not a great option either. Um, I travel a fair amount, and after I stayed during one of my travels in a former Catholic monastery that's been converted to luxury condominiums, there was still the Catholic school with the church complex across it. There was a standard architectural arrangement. Uh, I became aware, and where I go, so many do I see of former convents and residences for priests having been converted to completely different uses. <coughs> the price of insularity and of withdrawal from the cultural sin, sin is loss of influence, and eventually ghettoization. And we Jews are very familiar with 
we being put into ghettos. So as long as uh, the religious people stay in their ghettos, don't threaten the culture and produce something useful, handicrafts, reprints of old books, Indian jewelry, whatever it is, maybe they'll be tolerated, suppressed, and continuously dwindling. And then we will lose all the riches and all the wisdom of ancient works. I don't think we want to be there either. So what is the third option? The third option is translation. Now, what is the concept of translation? Anyone who has translated, as I have, uh, realizes that the source and the destination are not the same. You can never say exactly the same thing in the other language than you do in the original language. There is a degree of interpretation. There are various options on how to express and how to be faithful. You can be more idiomatic and less faithful to the actual language. You can be more stilted and be faithful to the original language. Uh, but whatever you do, Translation is not duplication. So I would suggest that we should approach uh, the mindset of the ancients in that way. So uh, what would it require of us? Well, first of all, you have to understand very well the source language. In our context, it means understanding the mindset of the ancients. Now, that doesn't mean that you read some book and pull together one or two non-compelling Near Eastern or Early Greek parallels. As we will see when we discuss uh, the paper I mentioned, that just doesn't work. You have to have, you have to be a scholar of ancient science and ancient works, and you need to be able to deeply understand the mindset, not enough to speculate. But that would be step one. <clears throat> you have to know the destination language. That means you have to understand the scientific worldview and where it's coming from. So you need to know some of the background and backdrop and history. Um, for example, if you're trying to translate the concept of sin uh, into modern language, which doesn't have that anymore, uh, you have to understand the change from the Western culture from the view of the original sin and don't all men are sinful to the view that all men are good. There are many, many differences how you approach the world between these two views. But you got to understand what you translated into what. Um, the loss of the idea of sin, of course, has been very destructive to society and destructive particularly to Christianity, which is built on that concept, but not for now. Three, you will, once you understand translation, you will express it in a new language. you will have to work hard, you'll have to struggle, because the new language may not have words or concepts that are the same. You might have to recruit not only linguistic and, and scientific 
abilities, but also poetry. Similarly, metaphor, you might have to plumb the destination language for everything it's got so that you can come closer to the original meaning. It's a hard topic. It's a hard job. Uh, our approach of what it meant, not what it said, is at least partially based on the concept of translation. So we have to understand what they said. Then we have to understand what they meant. And then we have to be able to express it in the language. And Wolchang, the way we see things nowadays, and do it well. Tall order. So let's look at an example of where, where I have a problem with uh, a beef. Uh, as I mentioned, the article of Rabbi Zev Farber on Torah.com asked the same question we asked. If the sun is created on day four, what is light on day one? That is the title of the article. So, um, he starts by re reviewing various uh, com commentaries and approaches, which is a very well-written section. And then he ends with a fairly short paragraph, which ends the discussion. It's called the historical critical approach. For some reason, he brings in the Tyndall effect. Tyndall effect, a name for the scientists who discovered it, explains why the sky is blue. And the sky is blue because the atmosphere scatters red and yellow light and allows more of the blue light to come through. When the sun sets, because of the greater thickness of the atmosphere it has to traverse from the side, more, right, uh, more right, uh, red and yellow gets through, and bingo, you start seeing yellow and red tones. Then he transitioned without any substantiation. They can see, well, there, there, you know, people looked at the sky in the ancient times. They basically, the backdrop is that they didn't understand what they were looking at. They said, oh, it's blue. That means there must be water above the sky. So this illustrates my first point. You got to know your sources. You got to know your history of science. I'll introduce to you an interesting book by Guy Deutscher, D-E-U-T-S-C-H-E-R, who is a linguist with a uh, daughter who is being called the new Mozart. Alma Deutscher wrote her first opera at age 10. She plays violin and piano. And she believes that music should be beautiful. This is so out of sync with modern theories that music should reflect the ugliness of life. And it should be ugly and a sing discordant uh, that she's pretty much ignored by the critical uh, music establishment. But her father moved to England. He's an Israeli. And he wrote this very interesting book in which he discusses his finding that ancient languages did not have a word for the color blue. It starts with Homerian studies in 1999, where uh, the sky uh, and the sea are described as the color of oxen, oxen, unless they had blue oxen, I don't know what that means, but uh, what it means is that they had to compare things because they didn't have the language. And the same is true of uh, Biblical Hebrew. There is no word for blue. And even Mishnaic Hebrew, uh, Karti, the word Karti means green, greenish blue, 
Maybe sometimes it means blue, and sometimes it means yellow. <coughs> uh, I'm not going to get into Talmudical discussion here, but many ancient languages, including Sanskrit, Latin, did not have a word for blue. Russian, on the other hand, has two words for blue. The dark blue, sini, uh, and uh, light blue, galuboy. galuboy. Um, interesting. But the point is that uh, there is no basis for supposing that the ancients looked at the sky and they said, oh, it's blue. Oh, water is blue. It means that there is water up there. So this means like one leg, first leg uh, of, of our proposed methodology to this question. You need to really understand the science. Two, he compares it to a couple of Near Eastern accounts about light being separate from the sun, although he acknowledges that Lucretius did see the sun as the source of light. Um, the nearest examples are not compelling. The second hand illustrating the second part of the requirement. You have to really understand uh, and uh, distant uh, parallels that are not compelling and not clear and not supportive uh, really don't cut it. So his conclusion too is that, well, that's what the ancients thought, and we don't think like that, implies that their views are not relevant. My goal in this series is to show how much beauty and wisdom there is in the Bible, and that it's not only foundational to Western civilization, but has a great deal to teach to us individually. And to do that, we have to translate, translate, translate. We may ask the question, why did not God just write um, in the scientific uh, way? Why not just um, tell us about photons and electrons and how things work there? And I think the answer, answer is simple. There, there is a Talmudic statement that the Torah spoke in the language of men. Dibra, Torah, Ka, Lashon, Bnei Adom. It's more of an exegetical statement, but Maimonides, Rabbi Hershen, collected writings, volume 7, uh, speak about it um, in terms of imprecision of um, human language for Maimonides, in terms of uh, the message that uh, it provides. But I think there may be another meaning to the term, which is simply is this. Now imagine that Moses descends with the Bible from Mount Sinai. And instead of, and there was light, it says, and there were photons, which are these little things that make up the center of the nucleus of the atom. Uh, 
You think you have Talmud now? Imagine what you would have to do to make any of this intelligible. Now, the key thing in the first few generations of Jewish history was that Judaism and its teachings be accepted. That was the overarching task. So to do that, you had to speak in a way that that generation and those generations could fully relate to and fully accept without sitting in the house of study for days and every verse trying to translate it to their language and their experiential world. That doesn't mean that it has nothing to say to us. As we will see repeatedly, I think, in this series, uh, there will be uh, many, many examples overwhelming, that will show how, um, although it may be expressed in a certain language of a certain era, it has teachings that are eternal and even apply to us. That would be my task, with your help, in this series. Uh, the thesis will uh, speak for itself. I much appreciate you listening to this fairly long podcast. Please uh, send me your ideas, your thoughts, or just let me know, shout out, uh, that you're there so that I'd be encouraged uh, to Hebrew Bible to the world at gmail.com. Uh, I'm slowly putting the outlines of this podcast on avakesh.com, A-V-A-K-E-S-H. So it could be reviewed and perhaps become a book later on. And again, friends and colleagues, thank you for listening. May you see only blessings. <laughs>